Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. For as long as we know, there have been vendors producing silicon that wanted to make their silicon as complex as possible and hopefully lock everyone into their wonderful silicon. We've seen that with the CPUs, we've seen that with the switching ASICs, we've seen that with the NICs that we put into our servers. There have been NICs that had the whole CPU and TCP stack on them, and they were called the storage adapters. Lately, we are seeing high-speed Ethernet NICs that can do everything and brew your coffee. Then you're asking yourself, well, does all this make sense? And you look at what the big guys are doing, and there's recently been a conference where both Google and Microsoft were publishing what they're doing in their clouds. And Microsoft did this nice analysis of whether it makes sense to go with vendor silicon and decided that the whole thing is way too slow for them. So they went for FPGA that sits in front of a pretty standard NIC to get the job done. And on the other hand, Google said, well, no, we don't believe in hardware at all. We'll do everything in software. And of course, the NIC vendors are not listening to anyone because why should they? And they're making their NICs more and more and more complex. But, you know, for an engineer, it sometimes makes sense to know where you should be focused and what makes sense and what doesn't, because listening to marketers and reading white papers will get you the results you deserve. So we asked Luke Gorey, who has zillions of good and bad experiences with various NICs because he's been working on the software virtual switch, snap switch for the last few years. And yeah, Luke kindly agreed to share some of his opinions with us. So welcome back, Luke. Thank you very much. I have uh, opinions in spades. With us also are Nick Boraglio and David G. So we'll just open the popcorn and throw out the first question and enjoy the show. So look, from your perspective as a software developer, does it make sense to have an overly complex NIC or would you prefer to have something extremely simple that you can then build your software on? Yeah, so this is something I think about a lot. And my theory is that what we really need in the world is a NIC with no features whatsoever. I think that this is a really important product that I would love to just go out and buy right now, but I can't because nobody kind of makes it. Just the, the dumbest, simplest nick you can, such that programming it is like, you know, the, the serial port on an old Apple II or something like that, you know, like the, the old UART chips. Why not? So you would like to see something that can recognize the framing and maybe do FCS checking, and that's it. And apart from that, it receives a packet and it puts it into a receive buffer and doesn't do anything more. Yeah, although I think FCS checking, I think that's probably a bit too, you know, we, we probably don't want to do that on the NIC. I think the simplest possible NIC would just do framing and copy zeros and ones between memory and a, and a, you know, a wire or an optical fiber. That would be a really amazing thing. And I think if we had that, it would change the whole software landscape. I think that these days, if you want to write a kind of a fast networking application, okay, so in Slab, we do keep things simple, um, but we still have to take a lot of pains for supporting different network cards. And because it's so painful to support network cards, we only support a few. 
but the normal approach is that you're actually seriously supposed to link something on the order of a million lines of C code, you know, representing basically an operating system into your application, just so that you can copy zeros and ones between memory and network. And I think this is just madness. You wouldn't be talking about DPDK, would you? <laughs> well, m maybe. The DPDK certainly is one project that fits that description. And I see this really as a case where hardware vendors have given software people kind of no choice but to buy into these very, very complicated software ecosystems. So if you don't want to use DPDK, it's actually very difficult to just get your zeros and ones onto the network because the NICs have very, very complex and often secret interfaces towards the machine. So you need a driver to make the NIC work and no effort basically is taken to make the driver simple and transparent for most vendors anyway. Most vendors, you can't even get a copy of the documentation that the drivers are based on. And so people kind of get their arm twisted to buy into these uh, software ecosystems. And then you have hardware vendors controlling the whole software ecosystem and kind of being able to ship code directly into applications. And it's a kind of a funny situation. And I think it's a little perverse. It's kind of like when you ask banks to regulate themselves. If you ask the hardware people to create a software ecosystem, you end up with something very complex in which software people are hopelessly dependent on hardware vendors. I feel like I'm having an extreme case of deja vu with the incumbent network vendors and white box right now, right? Because it's conceptually very similar. The big vendors control the hardware, they build the hardware, right? And then they control the software that runs on it. And then you have vendor lock-in if you implement their proprietary things. So I think there's a big parallel there, or perhaps I'm not hearing the same story that you guys are. No, I think, I think so. Absolutely. It seems like every time you think you've finally taken off the shackles and reached the promised land, you, you're not quite there. There's always something, you know, some thread around your ankle that then ends up kind of keeping you kind of tethered. For the engineers that may not fully grok what, you know, what you're getting at there, can you give us an example of where having this type of environment would be advantageous for, you know, say, an average service provider or, or very large enterprise or really anyone? Sure. Okay. So I think often of this quotation from, I think, Bob Barton a very long time ago, where he says that system programmers are high priests of a low cult. I think what this means is that software people, when they're writing low-level software that interfaces with hardware, they have a tendency to make things very, very, very complicated. And this excludes just about everybody from actually being able to do that kind of development. And it makes everybody then dependent on these high priests, but they kind of degrade the whole field in doing so. So I think that in principle, all of this network equipment can be written basically by anybody using any kind of tools. You know, you could have Java programs and, and all of the kind of the, the tooling that enterprises and everybody else are comfortable with, um, that's all actually perfectly appropriate for doing a lot of the networking data plane applications these days, but they're artificially excluded from participating in that world by these very complicated frameworks like Unix kernels and DPDK and so on, which in some sense putting up barriers so that the exclusive domain of these hardcore system programmers, when there's not really a good reason for it anymore in this day and age. Well, if we forget the system programmers for the moment, the argument that you usually hear from the Nick vendors is that they're building all these features because someone is asking for them. Well, obviously true. 
And the reason some people might be asking for this feature, so I'm told, is that it's simply cheaper to implement certain common things in hardware than burning CPU cycles doing them. For example, the FCS check. It's probably cheaper to implement that in silicon on the NIC than to burn the CPU cycles computing FCS in software. Or are we that far along that this doesn't matter anymore? So in that specific case, it's a very interesting question. I'm talking with somebody right now who is developing a NIC, and we're meaning to check that. You know, Intel CPUs, for example, actually have a CLC32 instruction, so it's not necessarily a, a problem to do that in software. But I would say, generally speaking, CLC30, like the FCS check, is one of the most extreme cases. You know, so that's the last frontier, I guess. Yeah, that's why I asked that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty extreme to want to move that into software. I, I actually do want to try that, and I'm talking with somebody who's building a NIC about doing exactly that. And I, you know, I guess you can test it with other ones. But anyway, broadly speaking, with the possible exception of the SCS check, I think the features in NICs cost much more. The cost of them is much more than the benefit for a lot of applications. I think you have these projects, like if you look at Linux and the network cars, you've got this kind of a codependence where they start offloading certain things like checksums onto the NICs. You know, and then it becomes complicated. You know, when a packet comes into the NIC, if you want the checksum to be checked, then the NIC has to be able to find the header. And so it needs to understand all of the protocols that you're using. And then maybe you're doing overlay networks, and then it needs to be able to find you know, the new overlay protocols uh, on the outside. And then it also needs to be able to find the kind of the internal ones on the inside. And it kind of becomes very complex. And again, thinking like in the Linux kernel, you've got this real codependency where the kernel kind of assumes that it can offload a lot of stuff onto the NIC. And this uh, propagates through the whole design of the system, I would say, where the focus becomes kind of uh, coalescing things into big frames that you can offload onto a NIC instead of just doing the networking. And I think for a lot of applications, you would be much better off, much, much, much better off these days in terms of performance and in terms of kind of the cost of developing and maintaining things to just do everything in software. I think we're actually way past the point where that makes sense for a lot of domains. Do you expect that to only increase so the more, uh, so the higher volume of cores we have and as each core does maybe less work, I guess, trying to push those large frames or the coalesced frames onto the NIC, I mean, I guess it, it doesn't make sense when you start having many, many cores. You don't, you don't need those kind of layers or scales of efficiency when you have a lower number of cores and a higher amount of throughput maybe. Yeah, I, I think that this is very much true. And I also think that the CPUs are getting wider and wider kind of data paths and network packets, you know, especially on the service provider side are not getting bigger either. So think about this. These days, Intel CPU has 64 byte registers. And the smallest amount of memory that the CPU can address is 64 bytes. So if you touch one byte in memory, it will load 64 bytes. And if you want to put a value in a register, you can fit 64 bytes. So a lot of people are talking about kind of 64-byte packets as the kind of extreme workload. This is just a very small amount of uh, data for a CPU these days. So you're effectively saying that if you want to touch a byte in a TCP packet, you effectively read the whole TCP scene packet into the CPU cache because you can't do it otherwise. Yes. And also, if you look at a lot of projects, like especially Linux, but I think also DPDK, the, the memory footprint of the metadata is much more than the memory footprint of the actual payload, if you're looking at these kind of uh, more high packet rate workloads. So you actually have the case where systems have been optimized in kind of exactly the wrong way, where you might have 
you know, uh, 10 cache lines of metadata and one or two cache lines of actual, you know, payload. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It also becomes a very, very, very complicated. Like if you have some time, you can look at the SKBuff structure in the Linux kernel that keeps track of packets. And it is so incredibly complicated uh, how you need to deal with this. All of the kind of uh, metadata that you need to keep track of and make sure that you maintain perfectly. And there have been some really interesting bugs. Like there was one I think was present for years where on certain network interfaces, might have been VETH interfaces, you didn't get any checksum checks at all anywhere because it's very, very complicated state that has to be maintained in the network stack to keep track of which checksums have been checked on hardware, you know, because the, the kernel is desperately afraid of calculating a checksum in software, even though that's really quick. And, you know, you, you have bugs and you get those things wrong and you end up kind of corrupting data because you, well, you, you have a very, very complex problem when you're trying to avoid doing any work because you want to push everything onto the network card when you have a very, very fast CPU anyway. So is this just a case of, of legacy and, and old thinking or slower speed thinking? I mean, is it just maybe as simple as that in some ways? But you've got that kind of, you know, traditional view built in and it's so concreted into how we do things. I think there's a large element of that. And I think it's also especially something with, you know, Unix kernels. The Unix kernel is a multiplexer, right? So the point of the Unix kernel is that you have a whole bunch of applications that you want to run. And you need to multiplex them onto a CPU. And, you know, in, in the old days, you have peripherals like a keyboard and a mouse and these kind of things. And somehow you need to have something in the middle that makes all of the, these things work together in harmony. And as you mentioned with the, like the multi-core world that we're in now, it's, it's just nothing like that anymore. You know, these days you just have a whole lot of incredibly fast CPU cores that are just tearing through work. And the whole game is just about avoiding synchronization and keeping everything separate. And if you can successfully keep everything separate, then you kind of don't have anything to worry about from a performance perspective. You know, any Intel CPUs these days can do hundreds of gigabits of actual real work. And you very often lose one or two orders of magnitude just by making things too complicated and making, you know, cores wait on each other and this kind of thing. Yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, this whole thing, I mean, from a moving package perspective, is, is quite complex. I mean, from, I mean, my world is mostly automation. From, even from an automation point of view, you know, you can still get lost in the weeds in, in terms of trying to make things flow and, and, you know, remove kind of blocking operations. This is, the whole subject's quite fascinating in some ways, just from that engineering perspective. So coming back more specifically to network cards, right? There's a lot of network cards out there. And it's a pity I don't have any like favorite network card anymore. I used to really, really like the Intel 82599 uh, Niantic NIC. It's a great piece of hardware because you go to Intel's website, you download a you know thousand page PDF that's very, very thoroughly written and very, very nice, and you can use that to write a driver. And in Snab, we wrote a driver for the Intel cards without you know without Intel ever knowing that we exist and without having to interact with them in any in any way. And that was really nice. The trouble we have now is. As time goes on, it's just hard to keep, it's hard, it's hard to have a favorite NIC that you can use for everything. So Intel brought out their next generation, the Fortville NICs, and kind of gratuitously changed everything for, you know, no obviously good reason. And they brought along the FM10K NIC, which is a kind of a whole other beast where they acquired a kind of top of rack switch maker and then took that switch and trunk it down into a kind of Ethernet controller of sorts. And it all becomes very complex and just trying to keep up with Intel hardware just becomes, you know, a multiple full times job because they're just kind of not trying to make it simple. I actually looked, did the same thing you did. So, you know, in my old days, I was also designing hardware. So I just downloaded the 10 gig NIC specs and yeah, like you said, it was well written, pretty reasonable. 
a few things probably already bloated, but okay, you can work around that. And uh, you just read it, you get it, it works. And then I was looking at the 40 gig card specs and it's like, this is a different planet. Why did you guys do that? And I could never find a good reason why they did it. Yeah, so my, my theory, whenever I see these things, is uh, you know Conway's law that organizations ship products that reflect their internal communication structures. So I think, you know, Intel is a kind of a multi-core organization, right? They're huge. They have practically unlimited resources and all they need to do is not stand on each other's feet and get confused and have too many cooks in the kitchen. So that's the best way that I can explain it. So every time they have a new product, they put like a whole new team on that and they need a driver for that. And they put a whole new team on that and you have all of these kind of parallel developments and not a lot of things in common. So actually in Snab, we have a unified Intel driver that works for both the one gig and the 10 gig cards. And this is the one that we now want to generalize to the 25 gig and 40 gig cards and, and to have one driver that covers them all. And we really need to have to, to kind of reverse engineer out of all these various thousand page documents a common model because Intel don't do it like that, right? They have separate drivers. They have the IGB and the IXGB and the I40E and the FM10K. And it's kind of a bizarre situation where we have to develop this kind of understanding of what the you know unifying features of the Intel cards are and how to how to support them all with a unified driver when even Intel don't know this and apparently aren't even interested in figuring it out. Yeah, and the programming model for the 40 gig card is totally different from what you have on a 10 gig card. It's it's like wow. I don't understand why you do that. And and I guess it's just this thing. They don't they don't respect the idea of independent developers building things. They don't respect our time or they don't think that we exist. Something like this. It really seems like when vendors create a nick, they see themselves as producing something for internal consumption by themselves. You know, I guess they they see themselves as really uh, delivering an, an accelerated open V switch or something. You know, and the the nick is a component of that vertically integrated product offering. So so far, we mentioned Intel as being yeah a bit confusing, but still the good guys because at least you can download the documentation. At least I hope you can still do that. Who are the other more secretive guys? So the other ones that I've interacted with quite a bit over the last couple of years is Mellanox. So Mellanox have a, a really interesting product offering, actually. So the ConnectX family is a really interesting contrast with the, the Intel family. And I think that Intel and Mellanox each have kind of different strengths and weaknesses. So Intel's strength is really that their documentation is incredibly thorough. You know, it's obvious that their hardware people and their software people don't talk to each other because otherwise they wouldn't need to write such fantastic documentation. So that's nice. And, you know, they're, they're great about performance and that kind of thing as well, right? Like in the Intel data sheet, they summarize the performance in a sentence and it actually tells you what you need to know. They'll say like, our 10 gig cards do line rate with 64 byte packets and our 40 gig cards do line rate with 128 byte packets and our 100 gig cards do line rate with 256 byte packets. And, you know, in my experiments, they've mostly just held up, you know, so, so the Intel, Intel is great on all of that kind of thing. But the problem is that there's so much gratuitous difference between their products that, as we, as we said, you know, it's a full-time job and a half just trying to kind of uh, integrate with the most common ones. So Mellanox is a bit different. Mellanox have all their ConnectX cards, you know, they, they support uh, 1 gig, 10 gig, 25 gig, 50 gig, 40 gig, 100 gig, everything. And they have a consistent interface between the network card and the host. So they do all of the kind of complicated stuff you do on the Intel cards is mostly done in firmware running on the NIC for the Mellanox cards. So they actually have a document called the Programming Reference Manual 
which is a kind of a message passing interface for the protocol that's used over PCI Express. So basically, if you have a little program running on the CPU, you can send these messages back and forth to the NIC to say, hey, I need you to set up, you know, transmit queue, or I need a receive queue, or I need, you know, I want you to put some packets here and that kind of thing. And you don't have to know or care what kind of card it is, whether it's a ConnectX 4 or a ConnectX 5, whether it's a 10 gig or 100 gig or something like that. And that is such a nice thing. That's such a way to kind of respect programmers' time, right? To say, well, this, you know, we have a product here. It's a network card. It's a PCI card. The way it interfaces with the computer is with a protocol over PCI Express. Let's make that protocol kind of, um, let's try to make that simple and consistent so that people can actually program it. Yeah, but on the other hand, the moment you have some extensive firmware on the card, you're open to bugs, right? Yeah, so it's it's not all a walk in the park. And actually, a huge thing has also been that that document was not available. So you go to their website and you can't find it anywhere. And we, we cooperated with Deutsche Telekom and actually got them to release that for the first time. So you can actually, now if you go to melanox.com and look for the programming reference guide, um, you can download it and it's there. It's not uh, it's not covering all of the features, but it's quite extensive and it's enough um, to write a driver. That was that was a huge experience. Having a complex firmware, this uh, it's <laughs> it's great to have the interface, but now you've got a lot of stuff happening in firmware. And when you're doing these kind of, you know, Intel basically never update their firmware. You buy an Intel card and that's it. The Mellanox, you know, they're shipping a firmware update constantly. And so I guess it lets them get new silicon out the door very quickly, and then they can kind of patch, 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 patch to get everything actually working um, and implemented in firmware. And it feels like their whole process is very much kind of, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that in Intel, it looks like their software and their hardware people don't talk with each other because the interfaces are nailed down and so kind of static. And I think with Mellanox, they probably all have lunch together every day is my impression because it's not so nailed down and like the error codes that you get will be a hex number that's not really described anywhere and changes from release to release. If you need to do any diagnostics, they will give you a you know a very inconvenient binary tool that will get a kind of a hex dump that you have no information whatsoever about how to interpret. So you have to contact their you know, support department and pass it to them. And yeah, it's very complicated. You need to be maintaining and updating the firmware all the time. Tools for updating the firmware are licensed in strange ways so that they can't be packaged by any distros. And they're kind of got all these weird uh, dependencies on specific Linux distributions baked deeply into them. It's, it's uh, the stuff of nightmares. So is there any decent vendor out there? No. So those are the two best vendors as far as I know. And, and I don't know, I can't answer for the others because nobody else, as far as I'm aware, publishes their specs. Nobody else will let you write a device driver. So for any other vendor, if you want to write a device driver, you need to, you know, like in the Mellanox case, it was a CEO decision whether they're going to release the manual. So how do you get, how, you know, and, and there's no reason not to. But how do you get, you know, the high-level executives to even consider the pros and the cons? Um, nobody's done it for the others. So, yeah, so as far as I'm concerned, there's no, I can't point to any vendor and say, wow, I really like what they're doing. Let's stick with them. So I think the world needs a new NIC with no features. So going back to that then, so what's stopping you from getting an FPGA sticking on a, on a PCB and put a, you know, an Ethernet adapter on there? Oh, we had, we had this deep dive on Twitter about this recently. And it's so tantalizingly close. So, so it's, it's really attractive, right? So suppose you did have just an FPGA on a PCI card, and then you have a little bit of a small amount of code because you don't want any features on the NIC anyway, and you want to make the interface as simple as possible. So you have a very small amount of HDL code, Verilog or something, that you know, interfaces between the PCI Express and the, you know, the wire on the other side. It's so close to being practical, actually, right now. 
it's basically a question of economics. It's a question of the cost of the FPGA versus the cost of an ASIC. And there's a lot of movement in the FPGA world. So the performance is getting better. And, you know, the bang for the buck is getting much better. And Altera, who have been bought by Intel, have uh, some quite decent FPGAs targeting the Internet of Things realm, where they've really kind of brought the cost down. But it's just not quite there. The hard part is the scarce resource is this SIRDES that, that just serializes the bits onto a high-speed interface. So to get so that that is an expensive resource on the FPGA. So if you know either Xilinx or or Intel Altera tomorrow would just update their kind of product matrix um, to get uh, FPGAs just just a little more competitive with Nix, then it would be uh, time to do that actually. And I really hope and I think there are people out there who have got kind of. Uh, you know, the designs ready to capitalize on that. So it will be such an exciting time if, uh, you know, one of the very few FPGA makers decides that they want to address that market. It would just be so awesome. You're missing a word from that. I think it probably has to be independent FPGA makers that doesn't have any relationship with Intel or any other NIC makers for that for that point. Obviously, yeah. it could be a huge loss of, you know, revenue for, for the NIC makers there. But that whole thing is really quite exciting for me. So even a previous life, I was an electronics engineer as well. So it's like, oh my God, I can actually make a NIC. This is cool. Yeah, I, I would love that so much too, right? Like I would I would so much prefer to have some you know, somebody like you build a nice nick and put it up on GitHub and then lots of people contribute to it and you know just and just try and you know get get a nick that suits. And and the the other great thing about an FPGA solution, right, would be that you know, if I want a simple one with no features and you want one with this feature and you want one with that feature, we don't have to kind of make a big complicated thing. You could kind of have your own branch that did your thing. So I don't know. I guess if the FPGAs don't get down there, then maybe you need something that you prototype on an FPGA and someone actually makes a chip of the, the NIC with no features. I don't know. I'd be happy to be the first customer. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know uh, how many people you need to make it economical. Okay, but assuming you would start doing something today, I always try to understand where we are right now. How far could you get with existing FPGAs? What line speeds could you reach today? It's only a question of economics. So you could do absolutely do 100 gig and people do and 200 gig and everything. Um, it's just that these SIRDES modules that do the kind of serialization of bits are, are seen as a high-end feature. You know, like with the Intel cards, if you want to get a lot of uh, PCI Express lanes, you can't buy the consumer desktop CPU. You have to buy the higher-end Xeon. And it's the same thing with the, with the FPGAs. So it's, it's only a question of the economics. And as far as I know, you know, they could... I don't think the manufacturing cost is higher. It's just the way that they position their products, you know, to make this uh, a premium feature that they make a lot of money on. Ah, so there are FPGAs that can do 100 gig today. It's just that they are more expensive. Yeah, and there's a fair amount of, of host tuning that has to happen. I've seen this work before. We've labbed some of this stuff up. And just like any other high-performance networking stuff, I mean, you, you have to do some reasonable amount of, of tuning of the stack in addition to having that hardware support. I wonder also if, if an interesting parallel is the RISC-V. You know, that they've now made an instruction set definition that people liked, you know, similar that you can make a kind of a NIC interface definition that people liked, and then they've made a series of implementations of that initially on FPGAs, and now you've got a kind of a bunch of companies competing to, uh, you know, make good silicon implementations of that that are power efficient and everything. So that's something that's happened really quickly, and there's a huge amount of activity there. So I wonder if that would be something that could be replicated in the, uh, the network interface space, you know, to get started on FPGAs, but actually bring it up. There's a certain amount of startup cost in getting the ASICs made and, you know, making all of the chips and everything. But my impression is that the cost of most uh, network cards and equipment is dominated by amortizing the development costs, right? 
Okay, so look, here is a world domination plan for you. What you have to do is you have to figure out how to filter the stock ticker with snaps which faster than what they can do today in high frequency <laughs> trading. And then uh, you'll have all the development money you need to develop your FPGA, Nick. That sounds like a lovely idea. Give me some metrics, high reliability, low complexity, easy to maintain. You'll make, you'll make a killing. I was really talking to a guy that was working in high frequency trading and they created this custom NIC with FPGA just so that they could take a look at the stock ticker UDP packets, which are arriving over multicast and remove the symbols from the packets that the CPU was not interested in. Wow. I heard also a really brutal hack from somebody working in that space recently that they're doing the processing in hardware on packets coming out of the exchange. And they need to start sending the proxying or switching packets and updating them on the way through. And they need to start, you know, sending it out before they've fully received it. So they need to write the checksum field before they've actually received the whole packet. So they don't know what final checksum is going to be. So they just reserve, they put in some checksum and then they reserve a little bit of space at the end of the packet where they can put in some padding bytes with exactly the right value so that the checksum balances out to what they really need. I thought that was a great hack. And they do that with CRC32? I think this was in a, in a higher protocol layer, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I can imagine doing that with one's complement, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the great, the great thing, the great thing about having a nick with no features would be that a device driver would be like 100 lines of code, right? It would be like a serial port on your old Apple II or something like that. And then you don't need, then suddenly like a million lines of code would just disappear when you're approaching a networking project. You would just take... You know, any old tool, your favorite tool, whatever it is, and you just write some code and people would not have this idea that networking code is something that can only be done by the really hardcore C programmer, you know, kernel experts. That that whole uh, idea would disappear in a puff of smoke. That's what I see as the appeal of the, uh, the NIC with no features. The other question also is, how does that million line of codes impact latency? That, I don't know. There's some very interesting performance impacts uh, to having all of this code. So one, one thing I noticed, so I occasionally look in, in DPDK, well, not really lately, but I have historically had a look to see, you know, what, how, how they do things and if there are any interesting ideas. And what I've found is that, you know, I mentioned that I think that getting the, the hardware vendors to build the software ecosystem is a little bit like getting the banks to regulate themselves. And I've seen some code in DPDK that seemed very much like a kind of a benchmark cheat mode put in to make a particular vendor's hardware look better. And it's very interesting then that if the hardware vendors own the software ecosystem, then they can put that kind of code in and then application developers are going to link that into their applications and ship them, potentially kind of cheating on benchmarks themselves without even knowing it because they just kind of uh, got all this code that was never meaningfully reviewed. And of course, wasn't meaningfully reviewed because, uh, you know, all of the documentation was under NDA and nobody's really, nobody's really reading most of the code that goes upstream into these projects anyway. Does this sound like Volkswagen to anyone? Just about yeah. to say the same thing. Yeah, we could have <laughs> we could have DPDK gate. I don't mean to suggest that this is something at a at like a, at a high level. I just I just mean it as a, a fairly extreme case of something that does happen, and a case where the the engineering goals and you know trade offs that make sense to the hardware vendors are not necessarily the same trade offs and goals that make sense to application developers. For me, it's you know the tail wagging the dog when you have the hardware vendors deciding how all of the you know applications are going to be designed. But that's definitely what it is. I'm going to ask something really, really stupid here, and you can laugh at me, you can cut me off from the podcast. 
if you remove a million lines of code, what's the trade-off? Something else has to happen. Unless that's doing absolutely, the book has to shift somewhere. So where would the balance of complexities lie to get what you need? Would that be a standard way of communicating over PCIe bus to a NIC? So some standard code book or something that's used, or you kind of get where I'm going with this. Anybody else listening to this might be going, hang on, a million lines of code, that's obviously not doing, you know, it's not doing nothing. It's not negligible. Yes, I think actually, as bizarre as it sounds, I think that that code can all just disappear in a puff of smoke and we will never miss it. I think that fundamentally what you want to do is get your zeros and ones between memory and the network. And somehow, by a long series of very kind of sensible looking steps, this has become a million line of code problem. Because, you know, people have decided that they want to do all of these other weird and wonderful things. And the net complexity of those things, you know, it's more complex to offload things onto the NIC than it is to do them on the CPU. So sure, you, would, you might have to implement a bit of stuff on the CPU, but you need to do that anyway as a fallback, you know? So I really think that, for example, if you want to get a, a ConnectX card and transmit and receive Ethernet frames, you're expected to download like this big OFED library that contains a whole like InfiniBand stack and zillions and millions and bazillions of strange features that you don't care about. And that's just, it's just something between you and the network. So I think that this code can disappear without being missed. That's my position. So I guess this is like architecture principles where one of the things you do is you create a high level model and then you try and, you know, you apply your model to the thing that you're trying to build. And then the third step, which most people forget about is you reduce and you reduce and you try and remove some of those abstractions. And I guess by using, you know, by bringing in one library that's got InfiniBand stuff in, and Ethernet stuff in, you know, yes, you might get a common interface, but then you get, you know, a gajillion unexercised and unused code paths. So I guess I see where you're coming from, from, uh, from that aspect. Just kind of remove all the, the clutches and remove all the crap and remove all the all the you know the special kid stuff and just get down to the raw basics. And I think it's true that the hardware people don't care about software to a first approximation. So if you say there's a million lines of code that you know I don't want and I'd rather just kind of you know write my own hundred lines to interface instead, they don't see that right for them. That that code is is an asset. It's something they spend money on. They spend you know five percent of their total development budget on maintaining the mountain of software and everything is as it should be in the world. And I don't think. I don't think they care about software enough to say, hey, <laughs> isn't there a simple way to do this? You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a question that, that comes up. Killing one's babies is never easy. Don't get me started on that. Ouch. <laughs> Recently, I had someone really upset commenting on every blog post I write, regardless whether it's about weather or IPv6 or EVPN. And it looks like he's someone that is really frustrated. I called his baby ugly. So yeah, don't get me started. Let's slowly try to wrap this up. Is there any way out of this mess? Yes. Somebody produces the NIC with no features. I guess it's prototyped on an FPGA, but it becomes an overnight success and everybody wants it. And, uh, you know, with like with the RISC-V, there is a market for it. And, you know, you get gradually more efficient uh, implementations and then Everybody just buys that, and it's you know like the Linux of NICs. You know, people don't go out and buy; they don't pull their application to Solaris and uh, HPUX and everything anymore. They just have one one platform that's fine, and they target that. And that's what the NIC with no features will be. And then we all ride into the sunset on our fluffy unicorns, right? Oh, we'll see you there. First one, first one there orders the beers. <laughs> okay, let's wrap this up. I'm right here. Look, where can people find you if they want to discuss these ideas with you or if they want to build the NIC that you're asking for? 
So the best way is to go to our Snab repository on GitHub, github.com slash snabco slash snab, and open an issue with whatever's on your mind, or jump onto our Slack channel, which you can find there and, and have a chat, uh, you know, vent your spleen at us, uh, and, uh, you know, force me to apologize for all of the, the impolitic things I said today. So someone, please go there, open an issue saying, well, I need the specs for your Nick so I can build it. Luke would be delighted. That's right. David and Nick, where can people find you? On Twitter at VTEP42 and on the blog at ipengineer.net. I'm on most social media at Boralio and on the blog at forwardingplane.net. And I'm Ivan Pepelniak. You can find me at ipspace.net. And if you want to follow me on social media, just go to the bottom of the page. You'll find all the links there. Thank you for being with us today. And next time we have to do something software defined. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.